Well, this is Homepage Radio. My name is Dua Dickinson. And every month, on the fourth Thursday of every month, I come to the studios of WPKN. I'll probably do it one more time until we go to our new studios. And we talk about our homes, what they are, why they are. And I'm joined here by a homeowner. His name happens to be Rod Richardson. And he happens to be somebody that knows about like electronic things and can turn things on and turn things off and and actually make things happen. I think that's called an engineer, Rod. Is that in this context, I suppose that's true. That's true. Well, Rod, I'm going to ask you a very loaded question because the topic of this of this uh, this uh, show is home of salvation. Has your home been your salvation? Uh, it beats living on the street. There's that. There's that. Um, I would have to say, to be really honest, it's it's sort of a mixed thing, you know. in some cases, I mean, because homeownership is also a burden. You know, there's Absolutely. all this stuff you've got to take care of. And there's all the stuff you have to worry about, particularly in the, uh, you know, surrounding the recent hurricane scare. You I mean, bet. We didn't get hit with it, but, you know, we were warned, you know, quite a bit. <laughs> and and you had to be prepared. And last year, during the summer storms that were mm. happening at late August, I had, a, I had part of a tree fall into my house. You bet. And so, of course, that was less of a threat because there was less of a tree left. But <laughs> you, you start to wonder uh, about, you know, the safety of the home, let alone your own safety as that happens. And, and they're connected. And so and I, and I would have to say, yes, having a place to go to on a consistent basis does provide a sense of shelter, um, even though perhaps that's just an illusion. Well, I don't think it's an illusion. In fact, Pat Pinnell, my friend, who's one of the great architects and historians of architecture in the country, basically cited the fact that in Robert Frost's The Death of the Hired Man, Robert Frost said, home is the place where when you have to go there, they have to take care of you. Well, that's a salvation of a sort, but that's actually not what this show is about. Because I think Rod put it really well, the terror of threat makes home safe harbor and the protection and sacredness of that, of that protection is always with us. And, and therefore it becomes a place of salvation, but homes beyond being the individual place that we all love is also the place of our entire culture. And Pat Pinnell mentioned that um, this isn't just us. He basically mentioned to me in the phone, he couldn't be here today, so he wanted me to, to know that, that, that he's done some research in the German concept of die Heimat, die Heim, sorry, die Heimat, die Heimat, which is really translated into fully house, fully village, fully community, fully place, the larger, greater place of us as a community. But I would extend that even further to the salvation of our culture via the symbolic reality of our homes. It's a, it's, a, it's a sort of a canary in the cave of all of building anything, what architects like to call architecture. But when we make anything, whether it's a car or a cake or, or a musical symphony or anything, of course, the immediate entertainment and value of it is itself. It's, it's enjoyment, it's pleasure. But the larger element of almost all creators is to make something that transforms where it's made, whether it's music or America or a cheeseburger or whatever, whatever you're going to do and you're creating it, you want it to change everything that created your creation. So 
Today, I'm going to be talking to three different people, none of whom are architects there, but they're all homeowners. And we're all going to be talking really about salvation in our homes, the home of salvation. And what do I mean? I mean, well, think about it this way. In this whole weird marketing world about what homes really are, there have been trends, but it's not the trends of black paint and the farmhouse that you see now trying to sell like crazy and the ebbing elements of the, of the housing boom that we just had for the last six months or a year. No, it's not about style and trend. It's about actually the salvational concept of how you make a home. So I'm going to run by about a half a dozen, dozen things by you, just, just in your car or having your lunch or just think about this for a minute. I mean, how many times have you heard about container homes or rammed earth homes? Or if you're really old like me, urethane homes or 3D printed homes, which you hear about all the time. I mean, container homes have gone up in price by 75% for the container because of the shipping crisis we've had. They're now up to $7,000 a piece. It means that when you go to build something, if it's, if it's pretty generic, it's almost the same price to use the prefabricated structure of the container. Or rammed earth homes, which are basically taking really clean earth and just like the sod homes in Kansas made when there were no building materials on an open prairie, they make a home out of what's around you. Pretty sustainable in some ways. Urethane homes were bizarre. The urethane was a foam that turned into insulation when it dried and people would blow up giant balloons cover them with spray foam and live in them until they fell apart, killed them or caught on fire and killed everyone around them. And now 3D printed homes are really the natural extension of CNC hardware, of, the, of software and hardware, which actually makes almost everything you see right now that is assembled in pieces and parts. Some part of it is, comes from a CNC machine. Well, those things, those, those, those four different things, those are things that have a mono material outside. It's urethane foam, it's a container, it's a 3D printed cutting up of, a, of pieces, it's earth. But they're also homes which people think about as salvational, not because of their, they're from an amazing unified materiality. They're, they're, they're things that are really about the designer. I mean, Buckminster Fuller did the Dimaxion home, this weird thing that was supposed to cost $40,000 and you'd buy it like a car. And Frank Lloyd Wright had no work in his office in the 1930s during the Depression, so he came up with a Usonian home, which was using lots of leftover pieces of material and cheap labor in a Depression. And other people, other people, independent of those two things, look to the actual, physical, extreme replication of pre-existing homes. In my time as an architect and millwork guy, we've worked on three separate Monticellos. We've worked on two separate Mount Vernons. People see a home they like and they just off it. They, they, they just reproduce it. And I would put into this little group tiny homes, the idea that you could control something by making it less than 500 square feet or less. And those predetermined designs... You know, Buckminster Fuller's Dimaxion home, Frank Lloyd Wright's Usonian home, the reproduction of any other home you've ever seen, or just the tiny constriction of, of homes, really says a predetermined design is our salvation. We will live within the confines of the genius of either 500 square feet or Buckminster Fuller or Frank Lloyd Wright or maybe uh, President Thomas Jefferson making Monticello. Well, the last thing is the thing we maybe are most used to, which is really, I would call it faith in technology. How many times have you seen a net zero home? 
or the touting of prefabricated homes. And again, I'm going to put it right in this category too, 3D printed homes, um, which are, again, trusting, a sal- tr- trusting in our salvation via a technology. And the, the last one everybody's forgotten about, but I'm so old that I remember 30 or 40 years ago when pressure-treated wood, you know, that green stuff that doesn't rot? When that first came out, it was literally a miracle material, like asbestos or, or whatever, that, that, that we all thought would be the salvation of our building industry, of any building industry. Well, they actually had many articles and back then videos that you would buy on a VCR. They would have videos and, and, and technological reports on making pressure-treated wood foundations, so much cheaper, so much better. And they just didn't work because no one had ever had pressure-treated wood for longer than two or five years in the ground. And stuff happens when you put wood in the ground, no matter how much chemical treatment it has or, or skins that it has over it. So if you have your faith in technology or your faith in a predetermined design or your faith in a material, a monomaterial, you're seeking salvation in your homes You want your home to transport you into another place beyond what you see around you. So when we come back, we're going to talk about this phenomenon, this human phenomenon of seeking salvation via these new ways of doing things, whether it's a net zero home, which is basically just a a really energy efficient home that's given cachet by calling it net zero. Um, with three really interesting people. We have Taunton Press's Peter Chapman. We've got Roz Kama, who is an interior guru. And we have New Haven Museums and WPKN disc jockey Jason Bischoff-Worsel. We're all going to be talking about how to find salvation in our homes. When we come back, Jason Bischoff-Worsel on homepage radio, WPKN 89.5 FM on your radio, whatever. Hey, welcome back to w- WPKN's homepage radio. I'm Duo Dickinson. I'm an architect. I write some. And right now I'm also teaching at the University of Hartford. So in all of those different hats, I'm like all of you. I have a home. And this program is really about homes. And homes can be viewed a lot of ways. Most people view it as just a place to not get hit by Henri as he's upset with you and will slap you with his high winds and, and, and rain. But for some... Homes are an extension of you, but that could not just mean, you know, the color green or, or even like, I would love to have something that is a Mediterranean style villa. No, it's about finding a type of home that you think is salvational. 
that you will find yourself and extend it into the world, into, not into, via your home. Well, one of those typologies as a starting point is what I call reproduction homes. It's not just doing a home in a style. It's actually finding a home and making it again, which which I've physically taken part of in my years working with a, with Breakfast Woodworks, which is was in um, Brantford, Connecticut. And we would make components for Monticello or components for Mount Vernon. We would literally make homes that are completely based on other homes. Well, I thought about that. And, I, and for the second week, second month in a row, I invited Jason Bischoff-Worsel to come on the program simply because if anybody understands the need to time travel in the present tense, it's Jason. So Jason, welcome to Homepage Radio. Thanks, Joe. Glad to be back. Well, Jason, this is just a starting point. So you can riff on any salvational home you want. But you know more about homes than, well, that's not true. I know a lot of people know a lot about homes, but you know a lot about homes. And I can tell you, I can ask you straight up, because you also know about history and also you know a lot about aesthetics. If you've ever been to the New Haven Museum, you've got to go because the the exhibits there are really the product of uh, Jason Bischoff-Worsel's genius. They are incredibly beautiful things that, that, that connect history and art, space and light. They just go. But anyway, having said that, Tell me what you think of homes as a salvation. Uh, well, first of all, thank you. And um, I mean, it's a great question. So, I mean, if you think about the idea of home as salvation on a personal note, that, well, you know, if you have a home and you're secure enough in your home and it's yours, then yeah, that, that's, it's kind of, I wouldn't say salvation per se, but maybe aspiration, mm, um, especially difference. built yep. into American society. Um, but at the same time, aspiration equals salvation often, you know, especially, um, especially in America, it, it can be blended into two. Um, and, and, and also, you know, that, that, that sense, I guess, of like, you know, okay, this will complete me in a certain way, mm. or this will um, move me to the next phase, you know, perhaps the phase of my life where I raise a family, or you do this certain thing, or what have you, and then mm. you go to the next house, and the next house, because that's another thing, too, you hear often now, it's not, people don't have a forever home, yeah. you know, it's like, oh, I've got this for right now, but in 10 years, I'll sell this house and get this house, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think it's, it's kind of, if you look at it from a salvational point of view, it is that, um, yeah, it's finding that, that's, that it's scratching that itch that you might have at there that you particular go. moment. You, now, know? you were one of the few people I know who off the top of your head with no warning by me, by the way, so I'm actually uh, punking my own guest on the show is you <laughs> might, you, you might remember the, the now long gone Oriental Gardens by Paul Rudolph in New Haven. And so uh, uh, yeah. this housing thing was essentially a wooden sea of container houses. In other words, the idea of a box that's stacked on top of a box, that's cantilevered off of a box. And you could mm-hmm. actually make a case that it was even contemporaneous and maybe inspired by uh, the, uh, the uh, World's Fair 
uh, housing in in Montreal, uh, units, whatever it was called, the the uh, the essential blocks of concrete that made housing as if they were as if they were container boxes. When you think about Oriental gardens that lasted a very short period of time because it was wood and they were all stacked with lots of seams and it rotted and fell apart. When you think about that and you think about the desire to make a universal construction piece, can you think of any other examples um, that you, that in, in your life and work with the New Haven Museum that of, of houses that you think are like that, that are aspirational, like you say, beyond the normal stylistic limitations of homes? I mean, I would say it's two different it's two different ways of looking at it. I mean, I would think I kind of categorize aspirational in a way as um, really just the, the the idea of owning a house. Yes. To begin with, right? You know, that's and when you think about throughout time, um, any home really. I mean, it depends on the few colonial homes. Say in, in New Haven, we don't have a lot of colonial buildings left at all, which is peculiar for being a city that's as old as it is, nearly 400 years uh, since European settlement. However, we like to change things in New Haven quite a bit, (laughs) and for better or for worse. But what you'll see is in that change is each era, that's the aspiration of the time. Yeah. You know, and, and, and often what's left is that idea. Um, you know, so take your, your, your basic colonial house that you see in Connecticut, the more modern, you know, especially mid century, right. 1970s, 1980s, the, the colonial was based on. Um, and we have this romanticism towards it, but at the time that was aspirational and that was the most uh. modern house you could get. You know, and that was, okay, I've worked my way up, and I have this, and I'll fill it with my family, and if I can own a few extra things that are not, uh, you know, that don't serve a direct purpose in my day-to-day, you know, if I could own a piano, right. wow, you know, <laughs> I've made it, you know, and it's true, and and, and so it's, as our kind of, uh, as the Industrial Revolution took off, and you had more kind of consumer products, and then you know, there was a, an understanding of consumer products. Homes became a consumer product. And yeah. that's kind of where we're at today, where, you know, again, where I mentioned this forever house thing versus like, oh, no, I'll, I'll switch up houses. You know, it's kind of like, you know, I like these sneakers, but I don't really like them anymore. <laughs> so I'm going <laughs> to get a different pair of sneakers or a different car. Houses that same way versus it used to be. If you could build a house and sustain yourself on that house and your family that was that was the aspiration well you know? it's an interesting se- it's great. a really interesting segue you, you you make um because the truth is in architecture um something happened just as it did for the rest of the world culture and all things something happened in mid-century after world war ii everything kind of exploded and after world war ii things like uh buckminster fuller's dymaxion house and and things like that, the urethane homes that were foamed onto inflated balloons or uh, architects like Antoine Predock or other people that did these visionary, esoteric, unprecedented homes became ways of, instead of validating the importance invested in the past, like you just said, they were validating the importance of investing in an unknown future. Mm-hmm. So uh, if I'd love you to sort of riff a little bit on your sense of time and our culture as represented in homes? 
Sure. I mean, personally, I, yeah, I would love, I love kind of like leaning towards that idea, this idea of what we call like mid-century, what have these forward thinking, uh, forward thinking architecture. Um, I love that. And what we tend to see is that doesn't, doesn't really get capture the general public's imagination because it might be too far out right um it might also just not work like you mentioned you know the <laughs> oriental gardens it didn't work it was cool i think it's cool but would i want to live in it no probably not because it wouldn't work um so then it doesn't stand the test of time so then we have these uh you know and especially when you take connecticut for instance where we live uh yeah as i mentioned colonials or the ranch house the whatever uh, these these floor plans, these these kind of generic houses that harken back to this, you know, fairly imaginary kind of marketable right. colonial history. Yeah, and so it seems natural that you'd have these homes, and it's kind of true. You don't have, uh, like, say, for instance, in Colorado, you don't have a lot of colonial no. style homes. Uh, you'll have things that are kind of more that that, that fit into that romanticism of Colorado. Or you just actually have brand new modern home construction. Super groovy um, construction, right? Yeah, which will actually then, say in 50 years, be the <laughs> romantic view of the thing. So it's kind of just your perspective on like what, what sells, what doesn't, and, and what gives that sort of sense of authenticity. Um, and often what now, an interesting thing to pose, and especially working as a historian, is, Whose history do we talk about? That's and we, we ask ourselves this often. Yep. And especially in America at this point, it's like, whose history sells? Right. And that's what most people know now. It's uh, unfortunately, and that's what sold you in the media. That's, what, that's how it comes across. It's you bet. That this was the story, because that's what you see. But at the same time, uh, perhaps the model for which it was built was again the most modern home of its day, right? And or was the most, you know, was was the most affordable. Um, a point I'll make is, we try to recreate these stately colonial homes that would have been, in some cases, aristocratic, mm. um, but we don't rebuild tenement buildings from bingo to the late 1800s. Even though they were completely functional, you get an entire generations inside these buildings. Yep, I mean. Maybe, you know, you had to go down the hall to use the bathroom, what have you. I guess maybe the closest thing might be, like, dorm dormitories. Right. But we don't, you know, I don't see developers being like, oh, we got to <laughs> <we gotta> build <laughs> a brownstone tenement building back, you know? Or, or I will uh, or but in New Haven, there are about 20 of those box buildings being built with a stick frame over podium, which kind of almost look like dormitories. But, Jason, it's great to have you on the show. Your perspective on aesthetics and time is truly unique and a gift to everybody listening and I and and do join Jason on WPKN when's your next show Jason do you know oh it is the second Tuesday of September so I believe it's about two weeks out from now and it's a vinyl uh, show right uh it used to be speaking of aesthetics yeah it used to be all vinyl COVID hit oh there you go digital now but there it's go. all good <laughs> and by the way I was just at the new studios Everybody who's listening, please donate lots of money because the new studios are almost done and they're fantastic. And I think you'll everybody would, would love to have PKN have the best possible new home. So, Jason, thank you for being on WPKN. When we come back, we're going to talk to Roz Kama. 
Roz Kama is uh, a world-renowned interior designer, and we're talking about these housing types that are often from the outside in. I'm going to ask her, when these typologies happen, what happens to the interior of a home of salvation? We come back on Homepage Radio. I'm Duo Dickinson at 89.5 FM. Welcome back. My name is Duo Dickinson. This is Homepage Radio on WPKN FM, streaming worldwide. Um, But this is also a place, WPKN, just like our homes are a place. WPKN might be this detached sound you hear coming from someplace somehow, but it all comes from a place. And you should go to the WPKN website because the truth is on it, you'll see pictures and and. and, and opportunities to support the move of this radio station uh, to downtown, from downtown Bridgeport to downtown Bridgeport. And the new studios really will be for the next 53 years or however long PKN's been around. And I think if you like what you hear on WPKN, you need to support it. So do go to the website and just take a look and see what's there. Well, this month's homepage radio is called Salvational Homes, meaning homes that aren't just safe harbors, but they're also intended to point a larger direction to our cultural future. And as I was talking to Jason Bischoff-Worsell now about the fact that Connecticut is a sea of reproduction homes from the mid-century, whether it's a center hall colonial or a cape or even a ranch, which is uh, basically the reproduction of a Frank Lloyd Wright house by an architect, Cliff May, out of uh, San Diego in the 1930s. These reproduction homes, these homes that use a cloak of style, blanket the state of Connecticut more than most states because of its density, but also because of its history. But if you go down I-95 and you go past exit 62, I think it's right around there, and you look to the south as you're heading north, look to the south, you'll see this thing. It's a geodesic dome house. And we were talking about Buckminster Fuller's Dymaxion home. Well, here is this geodesic dome house with triangular windows as a salvational technological way to make the most space for the least amount of money, the most efficiently you could. And it would be the way all homes would be designed in the future when they built it. And of course, that didn't work out. Well, having said that, 
these great ideas, you know, like net zero or, or 3D printed, or even back in the day, we're talking about foam homes where uh, urethane foam homes, where they would inflate a balloon, put urethane foam uh, projected onto it and then deflate the balloon and cut it open and live in it. These great ideas are a way of finding a place outside of a reproduction home, outside of the mainstream to express the future. Well, one of the ways that people are thinking about that are the tiny house movement. Why do we need a 2,750 square foot house, which is about the average in the country right now? We can live in 400 square feet, 500 square feet. Well, if that is the case, well, then all these advertisements and jokes about how tiny homes essentially are so heavily over-designed that you can't really uh, have a Zoom call and go to the bathroom at the same time. So my sense is this, that this outside-in design, this idea-first design, leaves out one critical component, and that critical component to me is the inside of all these great ideas. That's why I bring Roz Kama out. Roz Kama is, is a world-renowned um, uh, interior designer. She's, she was the national director of the ASID, which is a huge organization of lots of interior designers. She's got an octor- honorary doctorate from NY, New York School of Interior Design, and she's won just a bazillion awards. And so, Roz Kama, thank you for coming on Homepage Radio again. <laughs> Thanks, Duo. This is... Uh... A very top-of-mind topic of uh, ours at Cama, where we think about what I call life indoors. You know, interior you design isn't just picking colors. It is about <laughs> how we live. And how do, you see, how do you see how we live interacting with these great ideas that form homes? And, and how, how do you see interior space responding to things that really have nothing to do with interior space? Yeah. So, you know, I, as you know, I thought about our profession, our combined professions and the work that we do together, as you and I know. Um, But, you know, why do we live the way we live? And so, you know, three questions come to my mind. First, who controls the stage Mm. at which we, you know, play out our daily lives? And you touched upon this a bit with Jason, you know, is it the developer who buys the raw land and figures out how to turn, you know, um, a piece of property into an economic uh, win? You know, is it the realtor? And I'm married to Ron Mazakane. I always yell at them and say, you sell it by the pound. Let's sell it by its (laughs) values. You know, is it architects and designers? We gave up that right. I mean, you're good because you're focused on residential construction types of spirituality, which is another show. But, you know, we gave up a lot of that. And I say, is it not the consumer who suddenly has a way to express a voice? Mm. And can we sort of dial back with stronger evidence about how we want to live in this 21st century, Mm. you know, and develop a more appropriate life indoors? You mentioned the uh, geodesic dome. You know, Ron's got the Triangle House on the Water in uh, Guilford for sale, and I forced him to have us rent it for the month of June. Tiny square footage, granted it was the month of June, but there was a lot of storms in June, and between inside and outside, we were never just indoors. Right. 
We were indoors and outdoors, and it was morning sun. It was evening sunsets. And so this idea of circadian rhythm, right. you know, so my second, you know, question is who governs the code for safe, healthy living? And most of our codes are based around life and death. Well, there's right. fire. Right. You know, will someone fall? Will a hurricane, as we all know, take us out? But who's, who's governing whether you're getting the right amount of sunlight? Right. We've got a lot of behavioral health issues in this country right now. We've got a lot of uh, aging in place seniors who, if they don't leave the indoors to outdoors and blur that line, their brains aren't functioning at full capacity. And there's so many elements like that, you know, that we study in our realm of healthy well-being and how the built environment impacts that. You know, a quick study, if you really want to know, is look at Dan Buettner's work at the Blue Zones. And it's not just light, but it's how you get outside and engage with your neighbors. You know, how you create purpose. Does your environment increase movement, not, you know, decrease movement? So walking neighborhoods. And then, you know, my third question, and you and I are a part of this conversation, and that is, are we in a transitory stage? Mm. Developers are buying up everything. You and I are both looking at Barbary Hill Farm and trying to help, you know, <laughs> the, the Goddards think about, and I say, what's, it's not their next generation. What's the next generation of that land? Whatever right. happens in this beautiful town of Madison, giving up a farm is a big conversation, You know, and I say they're deeply rooted, but nature is even deeper. And so do we allow developers to come in and build density because they can make money? Or do we begin to understand what is the the economic need? And it isn't just economics. Economics is health and well-being, because if we put people in buildings that create a sick syndrome... It costs us money. Well, an so interesting, an interesting dollars. side, an interesting side thing of what you just said is that you could make a case that these, these salvational home types, whether it's whether it's the net zero or the or the pre or the three uh, D printed or or any of these these things that are really from the outside in that you're used now to market homes heavily, they get started with the idea of bucking that that transactional free market system of making money off of a home type. They yeah. want to, they want to invent a new home type and the and the extreme bizarre appeal of the tiny house movement was that, was that we're so tired of these McMansions. We really can't stand them. Let's go all the way back to the place where we are yeah. totally in control of every aspect of our lives in our homes. And in these tiny homes, cause you know more about interior space than anybody that I know. On these interior, when you actually define every human act by exactly the physical accommodation of it, mm-hmm. do interiors just disappear? Yes. I mean, I, you know, I've um, designed my own home because I refuse <laughs> to buy the housing stock, although I do firmly believe in what Jason talked about. I've got an 1883 building in New Haven that I work mm. out of, so I've done adaptive reuse. But I do believe that you blur the line and you have to, um, and this is, you know, the average consumer does not have the capability to build their own home. Right. But we, 
we certainly, those of us in control of it, and I think architecture and design has to step to the fore and partner with academia to really understand in this 21st century, especially coming off of a, a year of isolation right. and, you know, the pandemic, uh, working, living, playing, you know, doing everything from home that we're going to, that was the extreme, but we're moving as an employer. I can tell you, we're moving to a hybrid way of operating all aspects yes. of our life. And home's really going to be central, but more than home, it's going to be community and village. Yep. And so, you know, I've been doing my own little deep investigation. I've been smitten by Ross Chapin, who's looked at, you know, these pocket neighborhoods where the car doesn't become the, you know, I drove around less. Friday, looking at how many cars were in driveways to see whether I really needed to evacuate or not. <laughs> the car, the car is telling, right? And every house right now is oriented to the car. Yeah. Russ Chapin's philosophy is you minimize the car. You know, there was an old trick I learned from doing a hospital in Ohio. They would burn the street edge so you wouldn't see the automobile. And then his concept is you don't have your own backyard. You have shared backyards. Right. So your community gets sm is big, but can be village-like. So your town green is really shared backyards. And living in town in Madison, my neighbors and I have carved paths to each other's houses. We call ourselves touching neighbors. Yeah. But it is such a wonder. We all bonded on Friday saying, are you leaving? I'm not leaving. Are you leaving? All right, we'll stay together. And But if we didn't, have that ability to build that bond, you know, good fences make good neighbors right. in New England, well, I might not have talked to them. And well, I don't think that's the way we should live in the 21st century. And that and that might be the actual salvation that we're talking about, more community yeah. and, less, and less figurative, technological, even iconic salvation. So, Roz, thank you so much for being on Homepage Radio once again. My pleasure. And we'll, we'll get you back on again. And when we come back, I want to talk to to uh, Peter Chapman, who is, uh, besides being a homeowner like all of us, Peter Chapman also deals with a lot of architects and writers and ideas about houses, about, about what makes a house. He works for Taunton Press, which is, of course, the publisher of Fine Home Building Magazine, where, where Peter often also works. I even write for it sometimes. The idea of considering what the home is is part of Peter's life, and I'd like to have him talk about these, this idea that homes can actually provide salvation for some. When we come back, Homepage Radio. Welcome back. Rod, Rod Richardson has made the most incredible transition music for this show. And I thank Rod, I want to thank you because I, that was quite a peppy and wonderful transition. 
the transition that I'm going to make now is 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 to Peter Chapman at Taunton Press. But before I do that, I just want to basically have you think about something. We all hear about what net zero homes are. They're a salvational idea that, that oh my God, you can actually have a home which is net zero in energy use, meaning that you will not have to ever buy again a, 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 a single watt of electrical power. Use any fossil fuels to heat your house. You won't need to do anything. You'll be, you will be in a place that has the lightest possible footprint on the earth. Except maybe if you live in something more than a tent. Because the truth is, when you build a 3,000, 4,000, 8,000 square foot net zero home, it's made of stuff that in its making is not net zero. And in its maintenance, meaning as it changes, degrades, whatever, it will need all those carbon footprint rich maintenance features that are consumptive of what it is. Well, if you look at what they advocate as a net zero house, as a marketing tool, the first thing they say is the site is the most important. And it's true. You have to find the way the winds go, where the sun goes, what the topography is, all of that. So the idea that a quote unquote net zero home or a geodesic dome or a tiny house or an exact replication of Mount Vernon is your salvation might not be really true. Having said that, I welcome to the show Peter Chapman. Peter Chapman is has been at Taunton Press for how long, Peter? Um, this is my thirty second year, so quite a while. So amazing! And if you ever bought a Taunton book, a, a, there, there's a pretty good likelihood that Peter had something to do with it. And he is he helped me with two books, Staying Put in the House You Build, and and it's kind of corollary House on a Budget, um, and it really was one of the masterminds behind Sarah Sasanka's um, not so small house, not, not so big house. That was a slip of the tongue. Not so big, not, not so big house uh, books, which were unbelievable sellers and on Oprah Winfrey and everything else. So Peter, welcome once again to homepage radio. Well, thank you duo. And um, first I'd like, whenever duo invites me on to the show, which has happened a couple of times, I, you know, I always think, okay, what's this one going to be about? (laughs) <laughs> so he sends me this. He sends me this email. And he says we're talking about homes for salvation, salvational homes. So I thought, okay, well, here we go. So after he called, I, I looked. I just um, went online and I looked up salvational homes. I thought, just for the hell of it. <laughs> and the only thing that came up was, was Salvation Army. <laughs> and so uh, I thought that probably wasn't what he was looking for. But having listened to Jason and Roz, that really helped um, focus me on what, what we're supposed to be talking about. So. Uh. Um, ask away, do I? Well, here's the thing I was going to ask you. were you yeah. uh, correct me if I'm wrong. My my potential misconception is uh, Sherry Coons wrote a, has written a bunch of books on prefabricated she homes has. with Taunton Press, and the, and yeah. the big one that everybody might remember is Prefabulous, and that was the first one. Yeah, that was the first one, and it follows in an enormous tradition. I don't know if anybody has ever heard of this, but there was something called the the Architects Small House Bureau, and that was out of Minneapolis, and it built over 30,000 homes over a 20-year period between the two world wars. And it was the idea that great design will make great homes for the same amount of money and people will live better. It, my impression of Prefabulous and any number of different things we've talked about is that a technology, in, 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 your, in the case of, of Sherry's book, 
the prefabricated modular home, whether it's in boxes or in panels or whatever, that'll be able, that type of manufacturing will do a better house cheaper for more people. And that will be the salvation of your life in a home. Now, whether or not that is true, tell us how those books did and, and they must've done incredibly well. Well, I, I think when we're talking about, you know, prefab houses, I mean, the prefabulous, I never really liked that title, but that's besides the point. <laughs> um, I, mean, I think the prefab, everyone thinks like of, you know, the mobile homes you get stuck yes. behind on the highway and you yes. can't pass them. That's, that's certainly one part of it. And they're, they're very kind of cookie cutter and they just, they're a mobile home, basically. But the, the prefab homes that um, Sherry was talking about are very much custom homes. Yes. Um, either modular where they're built in the factory or they're, they're panelized. And the parts are then assembled on the site. So um, I, I would question about them being, you know, less expensive than a comparable home. I think right. they are, you know, you obviously have to buy the, the uh, site. And most of these are very um, high tech, I would say, and very energy efficient and green. And, you know, by definition, some of that makes them more expensive, I think. So um, mm. I wouldn't say that prefab houses, custom prefab houses is a, is a way to salvation unless you've got a lot of money. <laughs> which is which is a lot of a case with a lot of the houses that you know you talk about do and that, that you know I know your houses aren't super expensive because you're an affordable architect but uh, when I, when I think of some of the houses we've featured in our books over the years um, you bet. most of them you know are afforded by the you know the one or two percent that's uh, a different thing but in terms of how well those books have done um, the very first one prefabulous which was going to be called house in a box originally based on the Ooh. whole uh, Sears. Mm. mail order houses that i mean i think that sold about twenty thousand copies and That's then good. we didn't do any more with sherry for a while she went to, i think she went to abrams and she did prefabulous and sustainable prefabulous around the world she did a bunch of them but we did do one called prefabulous small houses about mm. three or four years ago and that did pretty well for us i mean it's you know any of the home design books now don't sell what they did in the heyday but uh, you know yep. for books selling 15 20 000 copies it, it, it works yeah well you know that idea of selling in general that actually sets up what um, what Roz was talking about. This weird dynamic that we have between personal vision, leadership, expression, and then the commonality of humanity, which comes really to me for each person directly into their homes, whether it's the paint color they choose for their apartment or whether it's you know making um, the endless house written by the architect Kreitler um, in the 1950s that was, again, almost like the urethane home, but it was sprayed concrete. And the idea that you would do these sprayed concrete homes and they would actually make a huge development, which he advocated in a 1950 exhibit that he had at the Metropolitan Museum, the idea that you could transform our culture with some innovative idea has no true staying power beyond whether or not it sells. And so I'm wondering, you know, you've been a homeowner for a long time. What do you think is the, besides price point, if you had to say, besides the cost per square foot, what do you think sells the most in your world in Connecticut? Um, I, w- I would say, you know, comfort and attractiveness of design. Um, mm-hmm. certainly would be it. I think increasingly um, energy efficiency is becoming important as well, like high-performance houses. Yeah. But I would say, I, mean, I, I live in Woodbury, Connecticut, and have lived in the same house for... I don't know, over 30 years, and um, driving around, I would say the houses look exactly the same as they did when I first moved here. Interesting. There isn't a lot of experimentation around here. They're, they're probably up in the, in the woods near Litchfield and Washington and Warren, yeah. 
that you get a few what I would call modern houses. But most of the houses built here are very kind of safe. Um, mm. They're probably more energy efficient than the houses that they are mimicking or whatever. But I would say there isn't a lot of experimentation, uh, probably away from the urban areas and maybe down on the coast, maybe where you are, there's more, mm-hmm. there, is, there is kind of more feel for that. Well, I'm not, I'm not, go, go I'm ahead. I'm sorry, I interrupted I you. I will anyway, because I, <laughs> I know you like digressions. But I, and I, I think of houses in like three terms. Like there's, there's homes of necessity, yep. which is where... Most people live. I mean, you know, whether it be an, you know, an Iron Age hut or a, a cliff house in Mexico or whatever, these yep. are houses where people live, and that's what they do. And most of us live in houses of, of necessity. Then, you know, beyond that, there's houses of invention. I mean, oh. You've been talking about a Dynaxian house, and I guess you would call prefab and net zero in, in that. We'll get back to net zero in a minute. But, uh, and then, then the third category, I would say, is the homes of exhibitionism, the things you see on, <laughs> on extreme homes. They're just sheer, sheer wackiness, and, and no one could probably think of living in them or designing them i mean but uh so those are the three categories um but i think most of us live in, in homes of necessity i think that's th- that sounds like a book what? peter should, should should i write that book oh yeah go ahead <laughs> <laughs> go ahead no, and it will not get, get published back. um so get so, back to, let's let's get back to net zero I yes and net zero a little bit you were bashing it and saying you know these just you know the, the, because of the carbon footprint and that I agree to a certain extent, but I think the idea of net zero is good. I mean, I yes. guess that through panels or whatever, you you don't consume any more energy than you yeah. produce, produce you. So it's um, I think it's a good idea, but I think it's it's really gone so crazy now because there's all these green certification programs oh. and LED programs whereby you have to get all these points to qualify as a passive house or a lead house. So I, yep. I think that's gone over the top, which is a nice segue to a book we're going to be doing uh, next year called yes. The Pretty Good House. I love so, it. Um, yeah, Who's the author? A bunch of uh, a bunch of building scientists up in Maine who've been talking about the pretty those guys. They, yes, yeah, yeah. Those yes. guys are yes. great yes. guys. They're, yeah. they're great guys. But I mean, their whole idea is that you know we all wanted a you know a high performance home, energy efficient house, yeah. but not to the extent where you need like R twenty insulation under your basement. I mean, it's just so there. It's a kind of a rational approach to building a high performance house. It's kind of, I'm not, and I kind of like the title of a pretty good house. I mean, it's, uh, I like it. It's kind of got, it's got echoes of not so big house, but, uh, I'll get them on yeah, the show. Uh, I'll get them on the show. Oh, uh, I, yeah. They'd love to come on. Yeah. I'm sure they would. But, uh, <laughs> well, this said, anyway. this is a great segue to something I was thinking about, yes. which is pretty interesting. When I was, uh, when I was a, a young guy and, and, and I would be working at breakfast woodworks, we get, we get drawings from architects all over the area and in fact the country sometimes and we get all these ideas how to make something and i would look at them and i go well that's not great you don't know how to make something and so i would at the in my 20s tell people that were in their 40s and 70s how you could make the thing that they had designed and that was an interesting inversion yeah but for you because you have rejected scores of ideas that i've had when 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 you look at out there and you get these uh, ideas over the transom, often fully fleshed out thousands of hours of workbooks from architects. Yeah. Tell me about the ones that are based on salvational architecture, that this will change the world. And you look at it and you go, uh, no. Well, I'd probably say the one book we did, which is interesting enough, which, which I think is a, is a salvational model is the Habitat of Humanity book. Which yes. Is Barry Horn. Yes. I mean, that was, it was, it was, we sent a crew down and they were building a house in Georgia and the book was called how to build a house. And it was, you know, with the ha- habitat for humanity mm. imprimatur on it. And, uh, 
that, I mean, that was basically building a very basic house, and it was built with volunteers. And it, to me, that was a Salvation Old House. It was nothing flashy. It was a very plain house. Mm-hmm. But it, it subsequently housed the family, and I think some other families since then. So, uh, you know, obviously we've done a lot of really high-end design books, but that kind of book sticks with me because it was the absolute uh, antithesis of that. It was a low-end design book. Was there no was names now? No names now. Is there one that really stands out as being an amazing folly of ego-driven salvational hope? Besides oh, one of mine, except for yours. Yes, exactly. Yeah, no, um, no, I, I, pro- I don't really. I mean, you mean you, in terms of proposals, rather? Yes, than, proposals. Uh, I, because I, I know my, I know my tribe. I know my tribe. Yeah, I mean, I. I I, I have had um, people sending me proposals about houses in response to the climate crisis and in mm. response to how they're going to deal with hurricanes and earthquakes and forest fires and that. You know, it's like a disaster handbook, basically. <laughs> but how do you build a house that is that is climate proof? I mean, so that's. Uh, but we haven't. I haven't ever seen one of those which has kind of grabbed me, and I'm not sure how well it would, would sell either. So. Well, you know, thank you, Peter, for coming on again. I, I think that the perspective of perspective who's a person who's got about half of his professional life in, in the belly of the architect, I think it really is great to hear your perspective on this idea that we can change the world and, and, and save humanity with things that we ourselves make, which is almost an oxymoron. So, so thank you very much. Thanks as always, Dua. Thank you. So this is Homepage Radio. This is one of many shows, a, a zillion shows, on WPKN, a radio station which is completely community-based and has zero commercial funding, which is a place that uh, both encourages and also uh, not only encourages but, but spotlights the essence of human creativity, mostly in music but also in ideas. That That salvation, the salvation of using what humans make to make humans better is what architects do, what I do, what writers do, what musicians do, what people in this radio station do. So when you think about the word salvational, of course it's sacred and spiritual and the the essence of the uh, undefinable reality of our emotional sustenance. It's also, though, about the inherent desire to make better what we've done here in the world. And what better place to think about that than in the place that every human being has, which is the home that they have, whether or not it's the back of a, a back of a bus or, or a subway car or a, a, a McMansion on a hill in Fairfield County. We are, we are our own best hope amidst our own worst fears. And in that, the home shines through as the one way that we can express who we are and where our culture is going. That's the essence of salvation, the idea that there is goodness to be preserved and that that goodness can be extended. So when you're thinking about your home, don't fret about your looking lame. Think about what's possible, because what's possible is why we're alive. So this is Duo Dickinson at Homepage Radio, WPKN 89.5 FM on your radio dial.